With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen. And I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to PodSurvey, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, PodSurvey.com slash James, and take a quick totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers and, and even content that you won't want to skip. So once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash James, J-A-M-E-S. Thanks for your help. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. Welcome, Jason Calcanis, to the show, world-famous internet entrepreneur. Jason, I feel like, how long have we actually known each other? It's like about 18 20. or 19 years. Yeah, it's, it's, it's closer to 20 than 10 or 15, for sure. Yeah, and so so you initially started with the Silicon Alley Reporter, which I thought was a great idea. Like, literally, every month, or I don't know, was it every month? It was, uh, yeah, monthly. I think we did 10 times a year. Um, and then like advertising got really good. So we actually moved it up. <laughs> and, and it was we... great because like I, like all the companies in the space were basically website development companies and double click. Like that was Silicon Alley. And it was great to know basically when every, when all my competitors landed a new client, I would find out in the Silicon Alley reporter where I was the first, I think I was like the biggest advertisement. I was either on your, your front page or your back page. Yeah, you had um, you took a bold step and you got rewarded because you took a thousand dollar ad, which is like people were like, "How much are the ads?" And I was like, "Um," and I was about to say a hundred dollars or five hundred dollars, and I just thought, "Why don't I just add a zero? So a thousand. And people were like, "A thousand dollars? How many does it go to?" And I was like, "It goes to ten thousand people." They're like, "Do you know how expensive that is?" I was like, "No," but they were like, "Well, client engagement's a hundred thousand dollars, so this kid's an idiot." And well, then 30, I, 30 people bought ads, and then I tripled well, the price. We're underlining also how bad a negotiator I was and still am that uh, I was just like, okay, yeah, $1,000 here. Here's a check. I had, I had no idea. Well, your contemporary Jeff Dotchus like ground me down. Yeah, he's he's a good negotiator. He's smart. He so, so, okay, so you did the Silicon Alley reporter. Then um, Silicon Alley just totally combusted. Like it just all blew up. I think at one time, did you ever get any offers for the Silicon Alley Reporter to buy it, like at the peak? $20 million from Alan Meckler. Yeah, so so I'm assuming you turned it down because obviously you love doing it. At the time, I felt I was the Silicon Alley Reporter. Like, people would refer to me. They would introduce me. Hey, this is the Silicon Alley Reporter. Like, what's your name, actually? It's Jason. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, it's the Silicon Alley Reporter. So it actually became a descriptor and a title more than you know, a brand name. Um, yeah, but I remember lesson. you were, you were having like, you were, you were at every party, you were having conferences. Like it really, I was really the party. kind of the center. I was the party. Yeah, exactly. And then yeah. you had, you had, you rented some sort of like huge loft space too. That was like completely empty except yep. for you. That was my apartment. Right. And, um, I would do the photo shoots there. You were there for the Silicon Alley 100. So yeah, it was a great time in my life. Yeah. And then, um, uh, uh, then you started Weblogs Inc., which was like now we call them blogs, but you were still calling them weblogs, which was the term people were using. So it was this this kind of infrastructure for people to to blog with, which which AOL bought for I don't know twenty or twenty five million something like that. And you stayed at AOL for a while, and now you're you've been you started Mahalo, which has turned into Inside.com, and you're also I think your biggest thing now obviously is. You're a, a, a super angel investor. You're in Uber. You're in all sorts of companies. Yep. 
so I think these are the highlights. You also have the show, uh, which I've been on several times, uh, This Week in Startups, Twist, which is a, yep. a show and a podcast. So, so I kind of want to take it back to the beginning because right after you started Silicon Alley Reporter, we met. I forgot who arranged it. It was you, me, another guy. And I said to you, Jason, you know so much about all of these companies that are starting. Why don't you either advise a venture capitalist or become a venture capitalist yourself? And you said, I don't like to do that. I only want to invest in myself. Yeah, it was Which... a huge mistake. It's <laughs> terrible advice. And that's why I passed on investing in Twitter and Zynga because I thought, oh, well, I'll just invest in myself. Why would I invest in my friends? Um, and then I stopped overthinking it and I did both. I invested in Uber and Thumbtack and other companies that my friends did. And and I also invested in myself. But yes, the, the point at that time was I, I really didn't think angel investing was going to be for me because I like to build stuff. Um, but, you know, I you get to a certain age. I'm 43 now. And, you know, I've built a lot of things and I know how it works and I have a stack of chips. And so I can put the chips to work more efficiently than in the public markets. And it's more fun to have more friends and place more bets. So I've come to the conclusion that at my heart, I'm a risk taker, a gambler um, and a good friend to people. And so, you know, angel investing is a really great uh, way to do those things. I can take risk. I can um, hang out with my friends. I can back their companies. I can make new friends by backing their companies. And it appeals to my, you know, gambling nature. I very much like to play poker. I like to play high card. I, I like to sit there and pull a card from the deck and bet you $1,000 that my card is higher than yours. The stupidest bet in the world I find very entertaining. That's funny. Actually, that's a game I play with my, uh, oh, then 12 year old daughter. That was kind of our one big game that we would play with each other it was a game similar to that. Uh, no. and she enjoyed it very much, but I do want to say investing in yourself was probably your greatest gain in net worth because yes. when you sell, sold people, you know, like it's one thing when you invest $25,000 and you, you have a huge hit and it's great. It feels great, but it's another thing to go from zero build a company every day and then sell it for 20 million, which you did with Weblogs Inc. And this was after having a bust with Silicon Alley Reporter, which was a great magazine. Wasn't your fault. Uh, obviously the whole internet busted, but still it must've felt pretty bad. And then you built up something from scratch again and made the huge, the biggest gain in net worth that you'll ever have in your life, no matter what else you do. Well, not exactly correct because I invested in in Uber, but <laughs> I understand. But Probably still, not. zero to twenty million is more 30. than twenty million to three hundred million. Well, zero to thirty million. But anyway, who's counting? It doesn't matter. Money doesn't matter right now. At this point, I'm I'm playing with that. I'm I'm free rolling. But the, I I agree with the I agree with myself. Let me just say that. <laughs> and I agree and, you know, the, and and in two thousand four or two thousand five, one of those years, I visited you. You were in New York and you were doing something with Weblogs Inc. And you kind of, I forgot how it was, whether it was, it was on some social network, which I can't even remember now, or maybe it was your email list. You said you were at this location, which was about a block from my office. So I figured, okay, I'm going to go surprise Jason. So I sh show up there. We hadn't seen each other in years and no one else was there. You showed me kind of the Weblogs Inc. software and kind of the inner workings of it. You were so excited to show every single detail of this software. This was investing in yourself. The product of investing in yourself was not the money, it seemed to me, was what, was your excitement in what you were doing and what you were creating. I agree with that. And I would also say that, you know, if you look at the podcast I do twice a week for five years, and, you know, I'd done other podcasts in the past, it is also an investment in myself because I spend my time sitting there learning from other entrepreneurs and investors and the guests I have on my show. I've also learned how to be a great interviewer. I would, from being a terrible interviewer, I was probably like a two out of 10. And now people tell me I'm a 10 out of 10. Maybe I, I think I'm like an eight out of 10 or an eight and a half, maybe. And still some stuff to learn. But I've been trying to perfect, you know, the interview skill. And the same thing with events. I threw the events for my own intellectual curiosity, but they made me very famous. And, you know, in our circle, not outside of it. I mean, I could walk down the street, you know, in Los Angeles and nobody would know who I am. 
I walk down the street in San Francisco or Palo Alto, I'll get stopped five times. And so being high profile has huge benefit for me as an angel investor and as an entrepreneur. People want to come work with me. They want to have lunch with me. I mean, if I just want to interview people for a job, I have recruiters pitch me all the time like, hey, you know, I see you need an iOS developer. I'm like, yeah, I don't really need a recruiter. I need more time to meet with all the possible candidates. So if I say like I'm willing to meet with iOS developer candidates, which is the, you know, currently the, you know, most precious resource in the Valley, you know, I could have 20 meetings set up this, you know, for next week. And yeah, a lot of them just want to meet me because they want to pitch me as an angel investor or just get to know me or they're fans of the show. But at least that starts to be on third base in terms of hiring somebody, you know? So, well, also, I want to I want to remind you of a blog you wrote. I, it must have been years ago where you said ignore all recruiters and just go yes. on LinkedIn and do your own, uh, you know, footwork to find uh, the best developers or the best of anything. And, and you, in the same article, you said don't use PR firms. And I, I think in general, you know, you, the invest in yourself. I'm not even just talking about money. In general, you've kind of perfected the art of the hustle and, you know, you know what you're capable of. So you go out there and do it as opposed to kind of hiring a recruiter, hiring a PR firm, wasting all this money that is usually just simply a waste. Yeah, I um, I have gotten better at that um, of just simply figuring it out myself and doing it myself. And that works particularly well for me. Um, so so t- tell me, tell me about Weblogs Inc. Like, why did you think, okay, blogs are going to be huge. They're going to be different than how it's been done before. I'm going to set up this infrastructure so people can, can um, create blogs. And then you started uh, Engadget and, and some other pretty, pretty popular blogs at that time uh, through Weblogs Inc. Yeah. So I thought um, that blogging was interesting because I had two employees at Silicon Valley Reporter, Shani Jardin and Rafat Ali, or Rafat, uh, and they went on to work at blogs. Um, yeah, paidcontent.org also sold for about uh, $20 million. That was Rafat's uh Yeah, uh, Rafat business. started that while working for me, hmm. and I'm an investor in Skift, which is an even better company than paid content. He's really you know in the zone, and um, he um, – he told me blogs were going to be big, and I remember the conversation of me telling him, like, listen, you can work on your blog blog on the weekends. It's stupid because you don't have an editor. So nobody's reading what you write. There's spelling errors, there's commas. It doesn't make any sense. And so by all means, go ahead and do your blog. Um, it's dumb. And I was completely wrong because even though they weren't edited, the whole point was they weren't edited. So the consumers felt like, oh, this is raw. And that was a very unique experience with writing. So uh, I realized, you know, when Shenny Jardin did Boing Boing and Rafat started doing here doing this, like, hey, this is kind of interesting. So they're actually getting an audience. And I read some story that Rafat was making like $5,000 a month working from home in his underwear. And I was like, oh, that's double what I was paying him. So there's something there. And I started studying it and reading the blogs and Dave Weiner and other people who are blogging and Peter Rojas and, you know, just some of the early people and we decided to, you know, make a go of it and it became, you know, one of the biggest hits of my career. And so I'm very proud of it. And, uh, it set me up for life, um, which is great. And, and now Mark Cuban invested, was he a seed investor? Yeah. yeah. He was our only investor. Uh, he put in about $300,000 and he got it about 5 million, I think. So it was pretty awesome, uh, for everybody involved. And, um, you know, Mark and I had been friend for, friends for a long time before that. And, um, you know, it was uh, it was pretty magical. It, you know, just everything just worked in that business. I mean, there were hard times in terms of you know servers going down and whatnot. But at that time, it, there wasn't a lot of new stuff coming out. So when you launched something like Delicious, would be something people played with for a month or two, or Flickr, or Weblogs Inc., or Gawker, because nothing else was coming out. So you basically were guaranteed that everybody who was in the know would. You know, try your stuff and play with it for a little bit because they had nothing else to do. Hmm. Now, you know, you have Product Hunt or the Launch Ticker or, you know, whatever. There's so many new products you see every day uh, on AngelList. I mean, it, it's – and they're good and none of them get any attention. 
Yeah, why is that? I mean, because it does seem like there's a lot of money now flowing into the venture capital space. Well, the cost of building things has gone down. So when we did Weblog Sync, you know, there were three or four days of putting up the servers, two or three days of getting our phone system put in, and you know, a couple of days of getting domain names, a couple of weeks of setting up mail servers. You know, like I could go right now if you said start a company and make it look professional. I literally could go. Uh, to Squarespace, uh, put up a website, create a MailChimp mailing list, put up a phone system with you know one of these phone system systems. Nobody uses the phone anyway. Put up a help desk software with yeah. Zendesk, at whatever. Twitter, there's no phones, right? It's just everybody uses their yeah. cell phone. Mm-hmm. They're not the only ones. Um, so you can just pop up a startup in minutes and. Uh, you can put a profile up on AngelList. You can set up a bank account instantly. Like there's a zillion things you can just do, and it's pretty fantastic. So what? What if? Let's say you were just starting out. Like so, a lot of people they're they're either graduating college or they're stuck in their cubicles and they kind of wish for a better life or they're feeling stuck. What what directions would you advise somebody to to look into to kind of discover a new area of the internet or what what? What new areas are interesting to you right now as an investor? Well, as an investor, obviously the on-demand lifestyle, the Uber of X and the Tinder of Y are the two biggest categories people are pursuing. That doesn't mean I'm pursuing them necessarily, um, but I do think those are the big ones. So you have HomeJoy cleaning your house and um, you have all these food delivery services. It's, you know, it's quite interesting. I, I don't actually think that way. Um, I don't think about like the trends. I like to meet with founders and I have my own basically system for figuring out how good they are and if I want to be in business with them. And it's, you know, very multifaceted, but just in for some highlights, I like to see that the person has a deep, deep knowledge of the industry that they're operating in, the customers, the competitors, you know, the products. And so if we were talking about watches and I said, oh, you want to build a watch, uh, a smart watch? Okay. Um, you know, what, what do you think of Apple's watch announcement or, and what do you think the competitors are? And if you were like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't see the actual, you know, video of the launch, but, um, you know, it looks interesting. I'd be like, okay, Apple's in your space and you don't, you didn't watch the actual video. I watched the video. I'm not in your space, right? Like, so there's, a level of deep, deep, obsessive knowledge that you need to have of all your competitors, of all of the nuances of their products, of the history. Oh, yeah, there was the Pebble Watch. It raised $3 million on Kickstarter. At the time, it was the largest amount. They raised money from Charles River Ventures. Like, you should be able to like know this stuff cold. If you don't, it's weird. And then I look for just absolutely awesome execution design you know the copy the details the finish the fit you know so if you are really knowledgeable and you're executing at a very high level in terms of on a product basis um that's a really good start Um, you're probably not going to forget everything the next day and stop being able to design good products if that makes sense right so you're so you're you're very founder focused and i've seen in kind of your descriptions of uh how you invested in Uber, uh, it was very much focused on the original people as opposed to the idea. Yeah, of course. So it, it's interesting that you say that the I, I've seen a lot of um, uh, investments across my desk, which are like the Uber of X. But I sort of feel like Uber is the is ultimately going to be the Uber of X. That's probably correct. Now, I, I don't speak for the company. I don't have any inside information. I specifically don't ask them to give me any inside information so I don't have these issues. But, you know, you you do see them testing a lot of different ideas. And so, um, yeah. It seems like like what Uber really is, as opposed to kind of like this cab hailing service, is you have people who need something on one side, you have logistics software in the middle, and you have this massive labor force on the Uber side. Now, it just so happens they apply that labor force to picking you up and driving you places. But it could also be, like you say, 
food trucks or it could be someone pick up my laundry and, and get it done and deliver it back to me. Like there's, there's could be lots of things that Uber could ultimately do. The key is that logistics software. Um, that's absolutely correct. And so, you know, I, I don't see why at Uber, I mean, I've seen actually my friends do this, like they couldn't get an Uber in Malibu. So they put the pin for Uber at Duke's, like, you know, at the border of Santa Monica and Malibu got the driver to go to Duke's when the driver was outside, my friend texted him and said, I'm actually in Malibu. I'll pay you to drive up here. So start the meter, pick me up here in the colony. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that's the most impressive hack I've seen. I don't know if the Uber driver is specifically allowed to do that or not, or how anybody would know that there was somebody in the car or not, but it just looks like a two-stop drop-off. But I also know people who've sent an Uber driver to pick up food, like a Postmates or anybody else. And so, you know, there's yeah. definitely um, a way to go about this. And, you know, I, I don't see why you couldn't order lunch from anywhere and say to the Uber driver or say to the restaurant, my Uber driver is outside. Would you give it to him or her? And then tell the Uber driver, when you're downstairs, I'll come down and get it. I think the Uber driver would do it. Uh, so I, I actually would. I actually agree with what you're saying, um, but I don't know that they're going to do that or not. Yeah. So whether they whether or not they do that officially, you know, I I could see it starting to be use cases that already start to happen among users. And then whether it becomes an official service that they offer, who knows? Then there's the flip side of it. Google investing in Uber um, combined with the driverless car idea. Do you think Uber will eventually be driverless? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I think those are. I mean, I heard Elon Musk, and I kind of trust Elon on his estimates more than anybody. And he said six or seven years. So I think that might be a reasonable estimate for some of these things. But I, I tend to think it's going to take twice as long as you know that estimate. I think it might be ten, fifteen years. I think the autopilot that he's talked about is what's more likely. You know, you get on a highway and you can you know use your phone and read because the left lane is only for autopilot cars and you can't get into the lane unless your car does autopilot mm. and you know everybody drives super fast in there and it's awesome <laughs> and you can read a paper uh, and get that time back so i think that's what will happen more likely um so yeah i'm not really it's an end of our lifetime uh, issue what other what other kind of uh trends do you see sort of happening over you know so so that's obviously an interesting trend um, and your friend Elon's obviously doing interesting trends with either electric cars or SpaceX. Are you in SpaceX at all? No, um, but I might invest in one of the rounds uh, coming up. You know, SpaceX, I think, is a company that is his true passion. I think, you know, he wants to back up and get to Mars before he dies. So, you know, he's probably got 40 good years left on the planet, and I think he could make it. So I think it's going to take everything in his, um, you know, and his power to get there, and it's going to take a fifty billion or a hundred billion dollars. So, you know, Tesla, you know, if it continues in that trajectory, it might help him pay for a portion of it. And Larry Page said he would give him all his money <laughs> if he died, or you know, I think he said that would be a more interesting thing to do. I don't disagree with him, and so um, I, I I don't know that SpaceX will ever be a public company or not. I mean, it'll be interesting to see, um, but he's very long on it, so it's it's going to be super interesting. I think the um, doc, democratization of investing is super interesting. So I have my own little fund that I invest in, but I also see things like AngelList or Funders Club or Micro Ventures and um, uh, Circle Up and a bunch of other places are doing very interesting things in crowdfunding. And uh, Crowdfunder, I think, is another. And <clears throat> what's very interesting about them is you know, somebody could come in who maybe doesn't have access to deals and they could back Gil Pinchino or Dave Morin or Kevin Rose or Tim Ferriss and put, you know, $3,000 into 30 different deals and put $90,000 to work. And if they had a net worth of $3 million, it would be 3% of their net worth. But they might have just bought a lottery ticket to the next Uber or LinkedIn or whatever. So Right. And so, and so just to explain that, so on AngelList, they allow for syndicates. So I can say, I want to follow, I want to invest in whatever, a small piece of whatever Jason Calcanis invests in. And then I'm in your syndicates um, on each deal. 
So that, and that's often a good way. Uh, let's just call it middle America. That doesn't have always access to deal flow in Silicon Valley. That's a great way to get access to the people who are putting together these syndicates. Correct. So an, an, an angelist is really interesting. I would say angelist is kind of the leader of the space. And I, I know I, I co-invest with Naval actually quite a bit. And uh, I think those guys are just geniuses. They are geniuses. They're doing a terrific job. And um, yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. But if you're starting a company, um, how do you kind of get visibility on a site like AngelList? You know, it's, there's so many companies out there now starting. Kind of getting the front page of AngelList is difficult. All you have to do is get one of the 20 syndicates to partner with you. So that's it. Very simple. Hmm. Partner meaning invest? Yeah. I mean, if you convince Gil Pinchina to invest, he then syndicates it. So. It's pretty simple. I mean, you just look at those people and you have to build your pitch around what they've invested in before. I mean, I, I, I'm shocked at the number of spray and pray startups there are. Forget about angel investors who just, you know, try to get a meeting with everybody they can and then they've done no research on them. You know, I've put it out there exactly, you know, what I'm looking for. You can watch me interview other angel investors on my show. And I'm always shocked when I meet with somebody and they're like, oh, you do a podcast? I'm like, really? Okay. You know, like, you really have to be clueless if you're not taking the time to deeply research the people you're meeting with. I want to have complete information, um, complete information advantage over anybody I'm meeting with. So I do massive amounts of research on people, and I don't need to, <laughs> you know, like. So, but I so do. Uh, so again, there's uh, this hustle aspect, you know, which I'm always going to relate back to the investing in yourself. You're like you say, you don't need to. But you're doing all the information. You're, you're 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 doing all the research on everyone you meet with. You're you're really digging down deep on the founders you invest in. And you know, going back to uh, you don't use the recruiters or you don't use the PR firms. You do it yourself in in many cases. Heck, you create your own platform for spreading news. <laughs> so yeah, like I, I was at a certain point, it was like I'm not going to beg TechCrunch or you know somebody to cover me. I mean, the TechCrunch people wrote a story about Google buying a company for $600 million. They never called Google to check. You know, they accepted a laptop or they asked for a laptop to write a story. I mean, this is like to, to be begging TechCrunch to write about you is like just pathetic. So I was like, okay, well, I'll just make my own email list and I'll write to people who matter. And I put a hundred people on it. Now it's 40,000. So, you know, over time you can build up your own email list uh, and your own Twitter following because you produce content on a regular basis. You have something interesting to say. And then I don't need the press. I mean, I can drive more people to a product than TechCrunch can, much more, just with my endorsement of it, just with my, I think this is interesting. I think right. this and is so, interesting so, enough to invest in. So I am the press outlet. I am the PR campaign. I don't need the, you know, and I still do PR with people who I think are interesting. I've met with TechCrunch. I've had them write stuff up. There are some good writers there. There's a lot of bad ones too. Um, but I think, um, you know, people need to take ownership of uh, communicating their ideas. And then when it comes to information, like if I'm at a poker table with you and you know nothing about me, but I know your net worth, I know what you do for a living, I know how much you've slept in the last 24 hours, I know you know, what type of shoes you're wearing, what type of watch you're wearing, and how much those cost, you know, I know that you don't care about the $3,000 in front of you. Or you care about it very deeply, and both of those things will impact how you play. And I know you didn't sleep, or I know you got in a fight with your spouse before you got here, or whatever. And so if I, the more information I can pull out of you during that poker session, and the least I can give you, the better my chances are of beating you or having some advantage. So I, I always like to have a, you know, uh, asymmetrical advantage on information. Right, which... You know, again, starting from Silicon Alley reporter days, that's basically how you started. It was aggregating the information in the space. So you knew, which essentially made you the, the central part where everybody had to know you to kind of spread the word. Yeah, I was lucky at that time that, you know, even though we had the internet, people hadn't figured out how to use it yet. And so there wasn't really a lot of ways um, to, you know, collect information. So I did become a a router of information, which was great. So now, um, so, so 
What are, what are the next uh, IPOs, would you say, that are coming out there in Silicon Valley? So a lot of people, I always hate that on Wall Street, everyone says, oh, maybe we're approaching another bubble again. But when you actually look at it, there's been relatively very little, uh, very few IPOs compared with like a 1999 or early 2000. Um, yeah, I, in terms of the IPO space, I think... Um, you know, obviously people have been following Airbnb and Dropbox and some of those high growth companies, um, Uber, obviously. Um, and I, I think those companies have so many options to not go public that having watched Facebook, um, you don't have to deal with a lot of drama post their IPO, all of which seems to be water under the bridge now. Um, but it was a huge distraction for a little bit, um, I don't think anybody's like in some tremendous rush. There's a really cool dynamic that's changed dramatically in the Valley and technology where there are secondary markets for shares where people can get liquidity without needing to go public. So really going public was so everybody could sell their shares and buy houses and, you know, get something for the seven, eight, nine, ten years they put into their project um, and maybe not feel like an idiot if the company went under because they had taken a 10% of their shares and sold them. Well, founders, I mean, the founders of um, Secret, I understand, sold money, uh, sold shares in like the first year. So, mm. you know, this is an untested product. Nobody knows if it's going to work. It's got all kinds of suicide problems and cyberbullying problems and harassment problems because it's anonymous. And they were able to take secondary money off the shares because there's so much demand. So, you know, IPOs are so not important anymore. You know, they're just so, so 20th century. I think, you know, I have a new idea for IPOs because, you know, everybody like prices the IPO of Alibaba and then it goes up or, you know, uh, Tesla, you know, does an IPO and then it goes, you know, literally 40x. So it's a much easier thing, I think. IPOs should be a 100-week process. You should have a 100-week IPO. And the way it should work is you have, let's say you're going to have a float of 10% every week, 10 basis points goes out every 10 weeks, 1% is out, and you just boom. Um, you just slowly sell the shares in an auction style. So you know, whatever that, the share price is. That's not a bad is, idea, and it's not impossible to do because the market itself is an auction, right? So just the first 1% is – even if you don't do an auction process on the very first 1%, Every other one percent will will be an auction. So all you have to do is file, you know, in just talking in Wall Street terms, all you have to do is file a shell file filing for the full amount of shares and then go public with just that first one percent. That's not an auction, but then every one percent after that is totally an auction. Exactly. So, so companies should do that. That's a good idea. Well, it keeps every company honest. You know, like now they um, can. Uh, you know, all these companies can uh, not have the VCs or anybody else selling early. They're sort of obligated to keep the company doing well. So you don't have like what happened with Zynga, you know, where like Zynga, you know, people were selling at nine, ten, eleven, twelve dollars a share before they went public, and then boom, you know, it goes uh, basically um, the whole thing goes kaput. And you know nobody could sell at three dollars a share. That would have made everybody slowly sell their shares. Maybe everybody would have been more focused during that down period. You know? Yeah, I guess the one the one issue is if you only have one or two percent of your shares outstanding that are out there in the public, then if there's a lot of demand for the company, your price could then immediately go artificially high too early. But but, yeah, that's but the sort of company anyway. would get that money, right? Which hmm? is the great part. The company would get that money. Uh, well, the trading itself, the company doesn't get the money. So the trading itself could drive up. Uh, like this reminds me of 1999. You have like Scient was selling only like 3% of their shares in, in an IPO. And because there were so few shares out there, but a lot of traders wanted the shares, the price would go up 20% a day. Possibly. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, yeah. I, somebody have to test it. I think what would happen is the most important thing is the company wouldn't leave that money on the table to spread. Right. You know? That's very that's, true. That's, I'm thinking about the company. Because the company is – and it would also keep the companies honest. So if it did go up, it would be because the company is so good. 
Yeah, that's largely true. It's a function of the the trading then as well, but uh, but that would be largely true. Definitely, it's the company possible would... it could get run up. I mean, I guess. Yeah, but that, that's an interesting idea. So so tell us about Inside.com. So this is your latest, uh, yeah, more, so... not latest, but Mahalo.com. Sort of more, which you started several years ago, has sort of morphed into Inside.com, and Mahalo was kind of this almost user. I want to call it like a user generated or user curated Google almost. And now it's, you've morphed it. Correct. Um, you know, one of the observations I, I had about news was the headlines and there was great inefficiency and mobile was a much easier way to consume news and was becoming the primary consumption device for people. So if people on mobile could read news more efficiently that would be a great thing for them because, you know, bullshit link baiting headlines from Business Insider are really frustrating on mobile. So when they're like, you'll never guess what makes Elon Musk so successful. And then it's like, he works six days a week. And you're like, thank you for wasting my clicks. Um, or people are like, oh my God, these are the seven vegetables that will make you live longer. And then it's like, Click the slideshow, and it's like you know. Okay, can you just tell me to eat kale and you know, Brussels sprouts and things that are green? So what I have is I have dozens of curators, twenty-four hours a day, reading the best sources of news and summarizing it and putting it into Inside. So if you go to inside.com/space, for example, good domain structure, you can see all the latest news about space. If you go slash Ferguson, you can see what's going on in Ferguson, and if you go slash you know, Star Wars, you can see all the latest Star Wars news. And you can also do that in an app, and you can slide the deck of little summaries and see the last Star Wars story and the Star Wars story before that and the Star Wars story before, behind that. Or it could be something like Ferguson. And you can, you know, swipe the deck with your thumb and just read the abstracts, just short 300-character abstracts, you know, basically two tweets in, in one with a small image, and then you link to the source. And a large number of our people – Link to the sources, and people are spending. There's a contingent of people spending, you know, between ten and thirty minutes inside the app. They're using it sort of like an RSS reader, and so when they do spend that much time in the app, they're actually spending it at the sources. They're using us as a directory of the best sources. So they read the little tiny abstract we have for long read of the day, like a long read. And they click through and they read it. Or they swipe through five long reads. They pick the one they want. They click it and they read it inside of our app because we have a browser built into the app. So it's really powerful for us if we can get people to click through and start reading. And we're, we're basically a net sender of traffic. So it's great. We're this like little thin layer on top of all this crazy news going on out there. And how's it going so far? Yeah, it's going incredible. Like people who downloaded the app over the last six months like a third of them used it last month so it is incredibly sticky and you know that's awesome and people spend a lot of time in it the issue um we have is um news is not necessarily viral unless you make it uh salacious and provocative like you know, uh, BuzzFeed and Business Insider and Huffington Post and all these people. So because we're not – because we're being efficient, we don't get to inefficiently trick people on social media. So it's sort of like we have a slow growth company, but if people do engage the product, they stick with it. So we're figuring well, it out. What about if people submit news, right, and then um, you do some Tinder kind of like thing where if uh, if somebody writes – you know, swipes on news that I've submitted, or if they scroll down on news I've submitted, I go up in points. So submissions I do get higher rank somehow. Yeah, that's possible. We're looking at, you know, submissions from people and that could help. Um, or, or what about uh, comments? Yeah, you know, commenting we have, and it turns out nobody wants to um, comment on um, mobile. It's just too hard to comment yeah. on mobile. So yeah, it's a little bit of a problem. Um, but we have some other ideas, so don't worry. We figured it out. We have ideas. So so, so it sounds like you're still involved in lots of things. So Inside.com, This Week in yeah. Startups. You were I kind do my of podcast getting, twice a week, yeah. 
Yeah, you were kind of getting more involved in podcasting, like you were setting up a podcast network. What what happened to that? Yeah, so we started one called This Week In, and um, I did it with my friend Kevin Pollack, and we had we got up to about a dozen shows or more. We tested a bunch of stuff, and we figured out exactly how to make a podcast work. Um, and you need to have somebody who is very notable in their vertical, who is willing to spend five, ten hours a week on their podcast and not make any money for two or three years. Uh, <laughs> and then they slowly build an audience. And so if you look at you know what's worked in podcasting, you know you have Leo Laporte who's been at it for a long time, or me, or Mark Morin, Mark Morin, whatever his name is, the WTF podcast. You know, it just it's somebody doing it almost as a loss leader for the rest of their life. And then maybe after a couple of years, talk about investing in yourself, maybe after a couple of years, it clicks, you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, and I like- then it becomes a business. So then if you try to build a network of them, nobody's been able to do that because these people are too big of personalities who are doing this for fun and they don't want to have a boss or be part of something bigger. Right. So if somebody could go and get Leo, myself, Kevin Pollack, you know, and the other big podcasters out there to form a mega network, sell the advertising, um, it would be pretty amazing. But, you know, I don't think Adam Carolla, you know, or Adam Curry, Leo Laporte, myself, or any of those egos could all fit into one company. And so once we realized that after, you know, 12 to 24 months of trying, I basically gave all the investors, including myself, back like 60 or 70 cents on the dollar. Because I was like, listen, it's not going to work. It'll work for one. It will work for my podcast. It'll work for Kevin's podcast. But, you know, Kevin Pollack's done this amazing podcast. It doesn't really print money, but it is fascinating for him. It builds his relationships. It gets him auditions and work. So and it, it serves his intellectual curiosity, and I think it's his legacy. You know, the guy's done 150 amazing interviews. So, you know, there's, there's cool stuff that comes out of this. But a business, you know, will happen for an individual, and it'll be a come a couple of million dollar a year business at best. Yeah, interesting. No, I, I've been looking at the space quite a bit, obviously, because I've been doing uh, this podcast now for about eight or nine months, and it's it's definitely been an interesting learning experience. Yeah. Do you think it's going to be a business? You know, I think the hosting of podcasts is a decent business. I think I think it's like anything. I think the picks and shovels are already starting to make money. The the biggest podcasts out there, like certainly Adam Kroll and Mark Marin are are making a decent living from it. Um a million bucks, yeah. Yeah, Freakonomics, uh, you know, American Public Media, uh all of these companies are are making uh, you know, decent money from it. Uh, you know, as a network, I don't know. I you'd have to think of some extra uh, secret sauce to kind of bind the network together, and and I don't know what that is. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> well, Jason, thanks so much for for coming <laughs> on to the podcast. Uh, again, known you for almost twenty years, you've done you've done really well. It's been really impressive to see uh, every incarnation. Well, let me ask you one more question: After Silicon Valley Reporter uh, or Silicon Alley Reporter. Uh, went down before Weblogs Inc. Uh, went up. How did you, you know, you were kind of dealing with this, uh, maybe, I don't know what you were going through, actually. I didn't talk to you at all at that point. Uh, I was going through my own thing. And w- were you were you feeling depressed? Were you feeling that something's going to happen that's going to pick up? Or w- what did I, you go uh, through to keep intact and then kind of come back? Yeah, I... I was bummed that the party was over. In a way, it was almost like the end of um, the 60s or something. It was like, oh, my God, what happened to this whole, like, crazy Woodstock thing? The party's over. And then, you know, I sort of – it was, like, hard to lay people off. So it wasn't fun. But I knew that I wasn't a fraud, and I knew I could rebuild it, and – I wasn't depressed as much as I was hungry to bring back that magic and to have fun again. And so I just went all out to try to find, you know, another party, another huge wave to ride. You know, I was like, I'm a surfer. Okay, it's low tide. 
let's find another beach. And blogging was that beach. It was like, wow, there's big waves here. Or these waves could get big. It was probably more likely. And so I just got out there and kept surfing, you know. And I, I think to a certain extent I've been lucky because I, nobody really had big expectations for me in my life. I think, you know, I was a kid from Brooklyn who they thought would become a cop. And so all my life, I people had very low expectations. So in, as a consequence, I think I had low expectations for a little while of my own existence until I you know, had a friend named John Brockman who just told me to dare to be great when I was doing well in my life. And he said, dare to be great, like go bigger, you know, and then I got sort of addicted to going bigger and trying to do bigger and bigger and bigger things, trying to make them more impactful. And so that's where I am now. And that's where I was then, which was, hey, this party ended, but I want to I want to keep the party going. I want to do something more fun. I want to I want a bigger challenge. And blogs was it. You know, and then became Mahalo trying to take on Google search and didn't work, but inside's doing really well and taking on news, you know, and like, oh, wow, phones were created while I was creating Mahalo. Smartphones came out like, okay, good. There's a good pivot. Um, I love doing my show. I love doing my events. I love angel investing. So I keep creating more adventures and challenges for myself. And I'm lucky. I didn't, you know, I have friends who went to Harvard or Columbia and, you know, their parents were very successful. And so they have this like... Just, just expectation to, like, to do better. You know, I don't have I, this expectation. I think also you're a, a super connector. So you basically always sort of land in a situation and immediately like connect to everybody that's important. I think that's a that you know luck favors the prepare, and I think that's a valuable skill that you have. Um. Okay. <laughs> I I guess so. I mean, I always have been prepared. That's for sure. I always read up on everything. I always try to have more knowledge than I need. So like I get obsessive about that, you know? Um, so if I'm going somewhere, I just start reading. And so it's pretty interesting. Like somebody was like, wow, you're so smart, Jason. You're, you just know about everything. And I was like, I don't think I'm that smart. They're like, no, Jason, you're like one of the smartest people I've ever met. I'm like, no, that I know that's not true. So what exactly are you experiencing? I'm like, oh, I'm well read. I, I can speak on a range of subjects because I constantly read and I constantly talk to other people. So if what, you talk the, to other people what, and you what, ask questions all the time, you're going to – some of it's going to rub off. You'll what, what seem book, smart. What books are you reading right now or what would you recommend? Oh, God. Uh, let's see. I, I really like this book, um, Creativity, Inc., which is um, – Yeah, I like that book. It's a really good book by the guy who founded Pixar. Um, his name is Ed Catmull. Um, really, really smart cat. Um, I read a book called Bird by Bird recently by Anne Lamont. Very good book about, about writing. It's about writing and it's really great. Um, I would say that and On Writing by Stephen King are my two favorite on writing books. Yeah, On Writing by Stephen King is great. I've read that and um, – I started reading this Capital in the 21st Century, you know, the French dude. Yeah, Thomas Piketty. Yeah, I didn't like it. No. It's bad. Um, The Martian is very good. Um, Halfway through that. Um, It's about a guy who, like, is in a Martian mission and how he would survive on Mars if everything hit the fan and went bad. It's just a weird, awesome book that somebody told me about. Um, Let's see. What else? Do, oh, you know what? Born Standing Up is great by Steve Martin. If you haven't read that. Oh, uh, yeah. That's actually my favorite autobiography by a comic. Um, it's the only autobiography by a comic I've read, and it's pretty fantastic. So that's good that I started at the top um, and went backwards. There's a really good memoir called All Over But the Shoutin' by Rick Bragg. A very good audio book. All Over But the Shoutin'. Amazing audio book. Um, what else is really good? Um, have you read uh, Zero to One by Peter Thiel? I have not. Um, I will at some point. Any good? Uh, excellent. It's actually probably one of the best business books I've read this year. Really? Or, or ever, yeah. actually. Oh, like, wow. That's like, I think it's really excellent. Better than Good to Great. Uh, much better than Good to Great. Much better. Oh, let's see. And I, I like Good to Great as well. Hmm. Let's so, see. Zero so, to One, read by Blake Masters. I like to do audio books is my thing. Now, now you, you, you said one, one final thing. Are you a surfer? No. Because what you said was interesting about, you know, you wanted to catch the next wave. And often in surfing, it's not the first wave that, that all the professional surfers go for. It's the second or third wave where oh, the really? surfers know that that's the wave that's going to win them 
the championship. And and it certainly has been true on the internet that the first wave kind of came and went. Then there was a second wave, which was sort of like this 2003 to 2007 time. And now we're in this third wave with, you know, $150 billion valuations coming out of IPOs. Uh, this really seems like, like the wave the professionals are going for. Yeah, I mean, right now, like everything that's happened in the internet right now is like the epilogue. It's like, oh, by the way, all that shit that went down, this is what happened before it. Um, just so you know. So like all everything we experienced is like the epilogue. And I think like what's happening right now is the story because what we did was we helped get everybody online at the end of the day. We helped people get interested in it. Well, they're all online now. And there's a whole generation that's grown up only knowing this. That's the actual generation. Right. We were the transition generation. We're like the people who didn't have TVs, who figured out which way to point the camera and how to set up a TV at home and put the antenna up. And then there well, was a whole generation that came in the 70s and 80s and it was like, yeah, well, of course you have TV. Like we grew up only knowing television. And then all of a sudden now we're in the golden age of television. They call the old age of television the golden age. The golden age is now when the top actors in the world would rather do television than do movies. Right. Well, it, it's interesting because back then it was difficult to actually even convince a company like American Express that they needed a website. Or, or HBO, I had to convince them to actually buy the domain name HBO.com, which they didn't own. Yeah, they were like, why would we waste 50 bucks a year on that? Well, two, it, 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 the cost was $250,000. Because they had to buy it from some squatter. Well, um, there was a medical company called mm. HBO. Got it. Genius. So, but they, to, their, to HBO's credit, they bought it in 1994. Huh. But uh, anyway, Jason, thanks so much. I really My appreciate pleasure. you spending the time. I know you're a busy guy. Um, congrats on, on everything. And uh, thanks again for coming on the, the podcast. Uh, it was my pleasure. You're supposed to ask me to do a promo at the end. Uh, what do you want a promo? <laughs> no, no, not a promo. Like a, I got to cut a, a promo for you. Hey, everybody. It's Jason Calacanis, and you're listening to The James Altucher Show. Excellent. Thanks very yeah, much. There you go. Bye. Talk. I'll talk to you. Talk to you, sir. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today.